Thank you, Lord, for reaching out your hand, becoming a man like us, wishing us to be with you. I pray that is our choice also, that we choose to be with you, and it is a choice. Lord, Father, I would ask that you would give us the wisdom that it takes to make the right choices. And now we're in a transition period of, with our church. I pray that you would give all of us wisdom to think, to ask questions, to perceive what is necessary for your kingdom to grow here in the Brian Church of Hastings, Nebraska, in the communities that surround us, that people come from, from all walks of life. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your blessings of a beautiful day that you have created this day. In your name we pray, amen. All right, I'd like to invite the children to come on down front, please. Come on down. I have something to show you today and all of the adults, too. He's, she's back. All right. I'm glad you're back. Look at this crew. Grab a seat. You have to look up at the screen today. We've got a little uh, PowerPoint presentation for you. How many of you have heard of Pinewood Derby? Do any of you know what that is? Some of you know what that is? Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, a little event. Some Awana programs do it. I know the Cub Scouts used to do it. Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts of America used to do it. You get a kit that looks like this, and you build a car. You carve that piece of wood. You put the wheels on it. And then they have the, wherever the church maybe that has it has a racetrack. Now, we had a, when I was in Michigan, we had a fancy one. It was a long, we had a big, long fellowship hall. that had a really long racetrack so that these cars would go, and they race each other. I think we could do four cars at a time. And then the winner of each heat goes on, and eventually you have a winner, a grand prize winner. And it's amazing some of these cars that are built. Let's see some of them. Here is a pretty fancy one that a kid might actually have done. Dads get involved sometimes building these cars. We'll see some examples. That's one I think that a kid probably did. He had a little four-door pickup truck, and I don't know how he did. These, aren't, these are just ones I found on the Internet because, unfortunately, I did not have a camera at work and looking at some of the cars that were actually made there in Detroit. But here's another one. And uh, I, maybe a dad was involved making Mario. You think maybe. The kid probably had some help. Let's see another one here. Oh, I think a kid could have done this one, maybe an older kid. Batmobile. Pretty cool, huh? And uh, he's got fenders on it and everything. Here's another one. Uh, okay, here's, here's, here was my model. Uh, back in 1988, I went to Montreal for the Grand Prix, and uh, that was back in the years when there were two great drivers in the world, Elaine uh, uh, Prost and a, a guy from Brazil, Ayrton Senna. They were both racing for the same team, and it was a rainy day, and this was the guy who won. He's a guy from Belgium, and uh, uh, Thierry Bootsen, his name was, and he was driving the Benetton Ford, a colorful car. I think there's another picture of it here, maybe. There it is. That was my take. I made that. I'm so proud of my... I made that car to look like Thierry Bootsen's. Thank you, thank you. Notice I got the helmet, I got the stripes on the helmet and everything, and it looks sort of like it, a little bit anyway. Uh, unfortunately, um, 
this car was a little low, and it scraped on the track on the way down, and it did not do very well at all. I don't think it finished last, but very, very close. But anyway, here's another one I made another year. I was inspired by uh, Chicago taxi cabs, and this was my take. It looks a little bit like a Chrysler 300, but this was several years before the Chrysler 300 came out. I like to think it was the inspiration for the Chrysler 300. Um, you notice I, had, I went to the trouble of actually making fenders over the wheels and everything. This one, I'm proud to say, actually did very well. I, I won the competition between the staff. That's the winner, all right? I, I raised it up high enough so it didn't scrape the track. At any rate, I think that might be the last one. Is there another one? I don't think there is. That's it. So one year, we had uh, in, in Detroit, now we had a, a massive turnout. We had over 100 kids show up with 100 different cars, and some of them were pretty fancy. Now you have to understand, in Detroit, this is where cars are built. So some of the dads work for General Motors, some work for Ford, some work for Chrysler. We had, we had Pinewood Derby cars that had been designed on computers and tested in wind tunnels. I was on the inspection team that had to look at the cars. One, we looked at the wheels, they looked a little different. We looked, there were little tiny ball bearings around the axles. Uh-uh, we had to say, no, you have to take those off put on the official Pinewood Derby wheels. The car didn't do very well without the ball bearings. Another one was unbelievable. It, it looked, it, it was, com the wheels were completely covered up over the top and around the sides, and it looked like sort of this, this beautiful, smooth lump of chrome. The finish on it was shiny and bright, silver, like silver. And, and everything was just perfect on it. And as far as we could tell, we couldn't see the sides of the wheels, but I didn't see any wheel bearings, so we let that one go. And that one did very, very well in the competition. Wind tunnel tested. I don't think a kid had anything to do with it. Some of them were more like what kids had and some, but just incredible. And so there was, it was quite a contest that went through. The, that, that was uh, one of the kids' cars. It actually wasn't the winner for the day. Ultimately, we had a competition between all the staff and all the, all the leaders and so on, and, and it came down to finally a contest between uh, actually that lump of chrome and a car that was made by a non-automotive guy, an attorney, and he had brought it and he put some thought into it, and uh, his car won by quite a bit. And I went to all the trouble in these past few weeks of making an exact replica of the car that beat the computer design professionally built lump of chrome. And today, I'm going to show it to you. It's in this bag. This is a true story. Some of the stories that Pastor Wilk tells of the past are apocryphal. This one is absolutely true. This is the car, this is an exact replica of the car that won the contest against all of the computer-designed, engineered, hand-built, fancy Pinewood Derby cars. This was the winner. True story. All he did was put the wheels on, the block of wood. He didn't put any extra weights on. Every year you could put weights on, they'd have a limit as to how heavy you could make it. All this is is a block of wood with the wheels, and he won. True story.
What can we learn from this? This is the question. There's a point to this story. What can we learn from this? First of all, I thought of a verse in the Bible that says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Boys and girls, in your life, you're going to have many contests that you're entered into. Maybe you'll play for a sports team. Maybe you'll be running track by yourself or whatever. And sometimes, even though you really, really tried hard and you did your very best and you put a lot of effort into it, you don't win. Then don't be, let your heart be broken by that because there's value in the process. Even though other people didn't win, the lump of chrome didn't win, all the fancy cars didn't win, they got the joy of possessing something they'd put a lot of work and effort into. They did something beautiful, and they had that as a remembrance, even if they didn't win. What did that attorney get out of this? This lump of wood with wheels on it. Big deal, right? So remember, sometimes it's just it's the process, it's the journey, it's, it's the effort you put in. That's its own reward. You're not always going to win the prize in every contest. Then there's one other application I thought about this. This basic lump of wood, this is fundamental, all right? What gets us down the slide of life and into eternity are the fundamentals. Knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, repenting and believing the gospel, that's where we all start just with the fundamentals. This is what is basic and important. You've got to have this to start with. You can add all kinds of things onto it, and that's a good thing. If you do beautiful things with your life, that's great. But the most important thing you've got is what you begin with, repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So I encourage you to do that. At least go this far with Jesus. All right? You can take your seats. True story. I've often wondered what it cost that guy to make that lump of chrome that he brought in. I, it had to run into the hundreds of dollars, and he got beat by a lump of wood built by an attorney. Well, this morning we're in the 21st chapter of the, of the book of Acts, talking about Paul's trip to Jerusalem. The challenge in uh, preaching through Acts, and particularly these later chapters, is uh, it could turn into a history lesson and a travelogue, and uh, what in the world do we do for application? What does that mean to me? And if I'm, I'm taking Acts uh, as a seminary student, which we did, um, I had a whole course in that, and, and it was interesting to learn about it, learn all, all the geography that's involved and so on. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but... What does that mean to me? And, and it's very important that we say, how, how does this affect me? What is this challenging me to do? And, and this chapter actually has some very powerful challenges in it. So let me read the, uh, the first of 26 verses. Bear with me, because we need to get the information first. And then, then let's look at some application. And when we had parted for them and set sail, we, Luke is now with Paul. That's why the we. When we had parted from, this is the folks at Ephesus, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there on to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And by the way, I just looked up today. Do you know how long the Mediterranean Sea is from east to west, starting at 
Gibraltar and going all the way to the far eastern end, that's 2,500 miles. That's, that's farther than it is from the Twin Cities to Los Angeles. That's about 1,900 miles. That's a, I didn't realize it. It's a long trip. So they're taking about half that distance in this trip that he's headed back towards Jerusalem, getting, going as far as he can by sea. When we come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. One comment here, because I'm not going to get back to this point. Paul was unquestionably a superstar, we would say, today's language of sports. Um, he was a, a, a tremendously effective, probably the greatest missionary in the history of the church. Uh, maybe not so much in terms of, of numbers. I mean, Billy Graham preached and millions came to Christ through his preaching. But laying the foundation for that and planting churches and bringing the gospel to places where it had not been before. I mean, he was a superstar. And when they heard what he had done in Jerusalem, they glorified God. This is the right attitude to have. There is a recognition here that is true and good that the guys up front or the women up front, whatever they, minister they may be leading, are the conduits for the truth. The gospel pipeline, if they weren't doing it, it would be somebody else, and so it's God who gets the glory. I remember uh, many years ago, I was at Moody and, and uh, Moody Bible Institute for something, and we were doing, looking at some material that Moody was going to be publishing, and we were, I was in a 
what a beta group basically testing this stuff out. And we had a guy from one of the mega churches that was there, and they just kind of took a break and they talked about all the thousands of people that were coming and how it was growing and so on. And at the break time, somebody said to me about the pastor of that church, they said, You know, he's an amazing person and he's changing the whole landscape of Christianity. But, and he is such a gifted person, it really wouldn't matter what he did, he would be successful. And, and I said, that's the problem. You get that? That's the problem. The, the, the problem is that this group of people have lifted up this guy, and everything he says is the word of God. They're not looking at him as a conduit. They're looking at him as a producer of something. And he's not. And since that time, this person has been disgraced and, and that church is, is, is collapsing. Uh, when are we going to learn to give the glory to God and not to the men or the women? When are we going to figure that out? Probably never. But they had it figured out. The elders in Jerusalem had it figured out. And, and please, do not fall into the trap of thinking there was some kind of conflict here between James and the elders and Paul because there wasn't. Because they heard what he said, and they glorified God. They rejoiced. Now they go on, and they bring up a problem. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So there was conflict there in the Jerusalem church. It wasn't from James and the elders. That's a misunderstanding that some people have of what's going on here. There was no problem between Paul and James and the elders. There were some troublemakers amongst the converted Jews in Jerusalem who were saying, Paul is telling the Jews that they don't have to be Jews anymore, that to be a Christian means to start being a Gentile, and they're abandoning our customs, they're abandoning the law. That wasn't the case at all. So then they go on. What, is, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, probably the Nazarite vow, which, which Paul himself had just completed. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. This would be pretty expensive because there were some sacrifices involved, and so he had to buy, I forget the list of animals. I think you've got it in your notes, uh, your devotional guide for the day. There was, they spent some money buying some animals for the sacrifice so, so that they may shave their heads that's the end of the Nazarite vow. Thus all will know there's nothing in what they've said, what they've been told about you, but that, <coughs> excuse me, you yourself also live in observance of the law, which was true. I mean, we, we just saw in a previous chapter that Paul himself had taken a Nazarite vow. He was still practicing Jewish customs. He wasn't doing it to save himself. He was just, just he lived as a Jew, that's all. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, We've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That was the Council of Jerusalem decision. They're sticking by it. James is affirming that. So then Paul took the men, the four men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. 
So two problematical decisions here that are controversial were made by Paul. The first is he decided to go up to Jerusalem. When people were saying, look, Paul, you're going to be arrested. There's going to be trouble. The second one was that he went along with this plan to give evidence that he was still a practicing Jew. He wasn't telling Jews that they had to become Gentiles in order to be Christians. That's the flip side of the problem that was dealt with at the Council of Jerusalem. Do the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And then the other side is, do Jews have to become Gentiles in order to become Christian? The answer to both those questions is no. That's not the case. Now, what the Jews are giving up is their dependence upon the law. They're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But as far as the Jewish customs are concerned, it's just fine to continue doing that. So, he goes to Jerusalem. Arguments that this is possibly a wrong decision. In chapter 21-4, we saw they were telling Paul through the Spirit that he shouldn't go. In chapter 21, verse 11, Agabus describes how Paul will be bound and delivered to the Gentiles, at which point Paul's friends beg him not to go to Jerusalem. Was he making a mistake by going to Jerusalem? How do we know this is an example to follow? You see, when we come to passages like this in Scripture, we have a question we need to ask ourselves in order to apply it. Is this action a sin to avoid, or is it an example to follow? Evidence that it might be a sin to avoid is the warning that Paul got, that he shouldn't go, that he was going to be punished, he was going to be imprisoned when he got there. But there's more evidence that this is, in fact, an example to follow. And this goes back to chapter 20, and if you have your Bible, you want to turn to that, in verses 22 to 23. This, to me, settles the issue, absolutely settles the issue. Verse 22 of chapter 20, And now behold, he says to the Ephesians, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He's already been getting warning before the warnings that we hear about in chapter 21. What does he say? He is constrained by the Holy Spirit and warned that imprisonment and affliction await him. This was Paul's destiny ever since his conversion. If you turn back to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, that man named Ananias, who went and prayed with Paul and gave him his sight back after his conversion, was complaining to God, wait, wait a minute, you want me to, to save this guy who's, who's got letters from the, from the elders in Jerusalem to imprison people? He's been harassing us, causing us pain, and, and, and God says, no, go. And this is what he says. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
Now, I don't know that many people get that kind of, let's say, heritage in life. We all have our problems. Paul was specifically given this task, not only to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, but to suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you argue with this? This was his destiny from the beginning. He was constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He was under orders from the Holy Spirit. The revelations that were given on Cyprus and by Agabus have to be understood in the light of this message that he gives to the Ephesians in chapter 20, that he was under constraint. It was not direction about what he should do that was being given by Agabus or, or by the people in Cyprus. That, that, that's not what was happening. What was happening was just explaining again to Paul what was going to happen to him so that he might be prepared for it. It wasn't going to be a surprise when he got there and the wheels came off and he found himself under arrest and in prison. He was warned. And so, what, in effect, what does he say? He was ready. Verse 13, I am prepared. I am ready, he says, to suffer and even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart, you see? So and this is important. This is actually a controversy among Bible scholars today. Was Paul giving us, is doing something wrong and it's a sin to avoid, or is he giving us an example to obey? I want to come down very strongly and say, Paul is giving us an example to follow, to follow our destiny and to do whatever it takes to pay the price, whatever it is. It's illogical from a human standpoint, that you would take the greatest superstar missionary in the history of Christianity and lock him up in prison, and what he had in front of us was over four years in prison in the hands of the Romans. It's illogical. Why would you do that? I think one of the reasons is it's a reminder that what we are as servants of Christ is a conduit for the gospel. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus it doesn't matter if the superstar gets locked up. The gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed, and the church will continue to grow because ultimately it's not about the personalities. It's about the power of God and the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The apostle Paul is merely the conduit for that gospel. Do you understand? This is ought, to, ought to be encouraging for us because I don't think there are any superstars among us. Is anybody a superstar here? Look, listen, if we were superstars, we wouldn't be in Nebraska, okay? <laughs> we'd be someplace important. We'd be, we'd be preaching this morning at some massive church in Washington, D.C., so that senators and congressmen could hear it and get saved. No, that's, I guess. But you no, know, no, even that's wrong thinking. It isn't about our personalities. It's about the power of God at work. And, and humble people do great things by the power of God. Just ordinary people. And, and Paul was an extremely well-educated, gifted person whom God used. But God used a lot of other people as well, some of whom we won't know about until we get up to heaven. And we get to know them over the course of eternity. Amazing. They may be just as amazed about you and about me, as we will be about them, you see. It's not about the personalities. 
This is important because what we're looking for in the next pastor is involved in this. Are we looking for some hotshot personality, superstar kind of person that's going to take this church to places where it's never been before? Well, I hope that this church goes to places it's never been before because that's where we're all going, the future. We've never been there, right? But I hope great things are going to happen. But it's not important to get a hotshot superstar. What's important is to get a conduit for the power of the gospel and a conduit that will not pollute it or warp it in any way. That's the key thing. And of all the things we can say about the Apostle Paul, superstar, yes, but you know what else? He was an extremely humble person with a, let's say, brutally honest assessment of himself. Christ Jesus, he said, came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the chief. The chief of sinners is how he categorized himself. He was a superstar, all right. Quite honestly, before God, he was a superstar sinner, transformed by the grace of God, who was a conduit for the powerful message of the gospel. That could be you. That could be me. It doesn't take a superstar to do that. And so God reminds us of that. By right in the middle of this phenomenal career of planting churches all over the world, I'm going to take this guy and I'll put him in prison for four years just to leave a mark on the history of the church for all time, that we are depending not on human personalities but on the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen to that? That's, is that us? That's going to be us. And I think this, this should kind of take the pressure off, in a sense, when we get into the pastoral search process. Where is, are we going to find the Apostle Paul to come here? You know, even if we did, we'd probably be surprised. We didn't know this guy was going to be so short <laughs> and so long-winded. Doesn't he know? It's already 1240. He's beginning, as I was in Russia one time listening to a guy preach in Russian, which isn't all that fascinating when you don't know Russian. The translator leans over to me and says, late one Sunday afternoon, he's beginning his third hour. I think Paul probably did that sometimes. He didn't know when to quit. I'm not sure we'd be all that enthralled with it. But so what? If it was somebody that was a pure conduit for the gospel and was going to change your world around here with the message that he brought. Wouldn't it be okay? It would be okay, wouldn't it, when you stop to think about it? We'll endure sitting a little bit longer. That's what it takes. It's not about the personality. So it's an example to follow. And I think we can reconcile these, uh, this, uh, the fact that he was being told you know, what's, what's awaiting him and the fact that he had this message. I, I think those things, too, actually fit together. Paul being under orders is what trumps this whole thing. We have to understand it. And he was ready for what happened. Now, here's the application. Am, am I willing to obey God's call, even if it means affliction and death? God is calling. And that call starts with uh, fundamentals like the, like the car, with just a block in the wheels. It starts with fundamentals. The call, the first call that you hear is the call to repent and believe the gospel. I, I trust that all of you here have heard that call and have responded yes. 
Jesus, I have decided to follow you. Even if it means leaving everything behind, even if it means suffering, even if it means humiliation, even if it means rejection, even if it means suffering, even if it means death, because Jesus, that's what you did for me, and I will follow you. That is the call that comes to every believer. Have you heard it? Maybe somebody here has never responded to that call and said yes, and today will be the day that you get it and you say yes. Jesus, I see what you've done for me. I see you're my only hope. I turn from my own way. I repent, and I put my trust and faith in you. There is that call, and that call continues. And Christ calls us to be ministers of the gospel, servants of the light. He calls us to live for him and to talk about him, to identify with him, to share our faith, to serve him, sometimes in humble ways, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes up front. But we have all of us that call to serve, to go where he sends us, to do what he tells us to do. And Paul said yes to that call. Have you said yes to that call? I appreciate the fact that our brother missionary Richard a couple of weeks ago was challenging you in that regard. And, and some of you signed up and said, yes, again, you were, you were hearing that call. You were responding and committing yourself to do something for the Lord. That is so important. Are we willing to obey that call? Here's a, a sort of a sub-point of that. Are we willing to release people that we love to an obedience that leads to affliction and death? After World War II, there was a breed of missionaries that emerged. They had witnessed brothers, sisters, go away to war, and some of them didn't come back. It was, it was part of our national DNA. It was expected that everyone would make sacrifices for the war effort here at home, and especially those who went and served overseas, and especially those who went into combat. People did amazing things for the cause of their country, and a whole generation of young people came up saying, are we willing to do the same for the cause of the gospel? And they answered yes. And they went. And they became career missionaries, and they spent their lives on mission fields all over the world. Some of the most famous who went out were those who went to minister to the Aka Indians. And we, we know the story about Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, who went to share the gospel in the Amazon jungle and who didn't come back, who were killed. And even more incredibly, Nate's sister Rachel and uh, Jim Elliott's wife Elizabeth, who went back to the jungle, to the very tribes that had murdered their loved ones and preached the gospel and won them to Jesus Christ. Women who released their husbands, parents who released their children, brothers and sisters who released their siblings to go and suffer and die for Jesus. Are we willing to do that? And I know the answer for some people is no. I knew a young man, brilliant young man, had gifts for ministry, 
doing a great job as a youth pastor. I don't want to get too specific about this. His wife wanted him to be like her dad, type A personality, salesman, phenomenally successful, made a lot of money, died of a heart attack when he was 46. But she wanted a husband like that, a driver, a moneymaker, and so he's not in the ministry. She wouldn't release him. Only so far, but now I'm tired of this. Let's go on. Let's make some money. That happens all the time. We, are, are you willing to let your husband and your wife go? Are you willing to let your kids go when it's going to mean a lack of worldly success, uh, maybe a lack of fame even, maybe, and certainly a lack of money? And you're always wondering what's next. Are you willing this is a serious question. And I, I, this whole crowd, Luke even, is with Paul. and saying, no, don't go, don't go, don't go. Enough already. You've done plenty, Paul. Don't risk your life. And Paul is saying, what are you, don't break my heart with this. This is a hard enough decision without you guys making it hard for me to do. So I, I grew up at Faith Baptist Church, 4350 Russell Avenue North in Minneapolis north side of town, not the greatest neighborhood anymore. I was in uh, junior high, I think, when uh, Dr. Peter Fair and Dr. Jerry Fluth uh, completed their medical education at the University of Minnesota and, and under normal course of circumstances could have gone on to long and lucrative practices in medicine in the Twin Cities, both excellent students. And instead, they went to Cameroon and West Africa. And there they served Jesus as missionary doctors. That makes an impression on a kid. And not too many years later, uh, when I was in high school, there were some college guys, uh, Victor Gunst, Wayne Bebelheimer, there's a name you don't forget and hear very often, uh, Doug Wakey, who committed their lives to full-time gospel ministry, pre-enrolled in seminary, went to seminary. And then there was me, and a guy a year younger than me, Steve Brocko. And we went on to seminary, me to North American Baptist Seminary, Steve to Bethel. And Steve went on from Bethel to Oxford University, where he became a professor of church history and served the Lord that way. And, uh, and I'm, you know my story. And then I ended up in Hastings, Nebraska. So it's been a long and strange journey. But... You know, my parents released me to that and helped me and strengthened me along the way. And they didn't say, no, Dave, you should do something to make some money. That wasn't my parents' value anyway. Um, they didn't have any money. But they gave what they had to support me. And Steve's parents released him, and Doug's parents released him, and Wayne's parents released him, and Vic's parents released him. You get it? What, what makes a church ascending church so that within a period of 12 years it turned out two missionary doctors, three pastors, four pastors, including me, come to think of it, four pastors, career pastors, and a seminary professor. It's just a question. Do you want to be the kind of church? What, what, why are there so many churches that aren't that kind of church? And, and here's, here's the thing. What, what, what's why I like what Richard did so much. You know, one of the problems is we don't ask our kids to do this anymore. 
I'm going to go on a little bit longer this morning, usually, but I have to tell you this. I was in junior high, and we had this thing called Consolidated Baptist Youth Fellowship, CBYF. And uh, one of the things that we did was every fifth Sunday night, we were in charge of the service. These were painful services. Okay? We did the music. It was fairly awful. Um, and we had speakers, and there were three speakers from the youth group every time there was a Sunday night. And by the time I got into seventh grade, I got the assignments of being one of those teachers. And I still remember what that felt like. There were probably 100 people that came out to that Sunday evening service. And uh, I, I'm up there, and I'm behind the pulpit, and I can't, I literally, literally, my knees were knocking together. I'd never experienced the terror of speaking in public before. And I had something, fortunately, I just looked down at that, my hands were shaking, and I read that thing. What happened to me anyway? do that anymore, you know? And I thought, this is never, man, I'm so glad that when that was over, drenched with sweat. Went downstairs afterwards, was getting in my coat, it was, I think, January or February, getting in my winter coat, getting ready to go home with my folks, and Mr. Brocklow came up to me. Now, in seventh grade, I was probably about five feet tall, and he was about my height. He was a little guy. Mr. Brocklow probably my age now, came up to me and he said to me, got me into the coats, pushed me back, and he said, David, have you ever considered becoming a full-time minister of the gospel? I was in seventh grade. I was planning on becoming a private detective. (laughs) Planted a seed in my head at that point. Are we doing that with our kids? You know what I found out later on? He did that to everybody. <laughs> that was the story for Peter Fair, Jerry Fluth, Wayne Bibelheimer, Vic Gunst, Doug Wakey, Steve Brockwell, his grandson, and me. There's nothing wrong with doing that. All he was saying, he wasn't saying, I think you should do that. He was saying, have you ever considered it? Young people here, there's kids here right now. Have you ever considered that God might want you to be a missionary? A minister of the gospel? A medical doctor that serves in a foreign field someplace? Have you ever considered it? Do you know what? That's the call of God. Consider it. Listen, maybe that's what he wants you to do. Maybe he doesn't want you to do that. Maybe he wants you to get a secular job. Maybe he, you know, he wants you to do that, but he wants you to be faithful to him there. That's another kind of call. But there is this call that comes, that secondary call. So what about the second issue here? The second issue that comes up is his decision to demonstrate that he supported Jewish Christians living as Jews. The, Jewish, the Jerusalem Council already decided the Gentiles didn't have to change and become Jews to be Christians. Neither did the Jews have to become Gentiles. He wanted to demonstrate that. Uh, Jews do not become Gentiles when they become born again. They're still Jews, and they can have their customs and their ways of doing things. You know, real-life story. This goes back to Detroit again. Um, Detroit has a lot of Lebanese people, and they're, uh, traditionally they're Maronite Catholic and there was a Lebanese gentleman that had married this lady in the, uh, before they came to our church. They were, gotten married a long time before. And he started coming to the Baptist church, and he, and he got saved. And he came to see me, and he said he wanted to be baptized. He wanted to join the church. But he said, I do have a question. Do I have to stop being a Catholic? And I had never been asked that question before. 
And I thought for a minute, and I said, you know what? We are not going to send a letter to the Pope saying that you've been baptized by immersion and are now a Baptist, I said. But l let me ask you a clarifying question. Are you asking me, can you still go to weddings, funerals, first communions at the Maronite Catholic Church? He said, yeah, that's what I'm asking. I said, well, of course you can. That, those, that's your family. Those are the customs of your people. Of course, you're not abandoning us. You go as a witness now. You're carrying the, your gospel witness with you, but by all means, you don't stop doing that. This is kind of the deal with it. You don't stop being a Jew. You, you, know, you still celebrate the Passover and do all these things that are part of your Jewish heritage. That's all Paul was doing. Paul was not caving in to the Judaizers. He was not now suddenly endorsing the idea that you should be circumcised in order to be saved. Absolutely not. He never did that. This was Paul's missiology in action. I'm going to read just a short passage of Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. This is what Paul was doing by paying for these guys to complete their vows. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. That's the Apostle Paul's missiology. That's how he did it. So, of course, he wasn't endorsing circumcision. He wasn't going back into legalism. And, and to, for him to be accused of that by modern-day scholars just irks me. It's right there in the scriptures that this is how he operated, and that's all he was doing. Now, the, it led to trouble, didn't it? He did get arrested. It happened exactly as God predicted. He did get turned over to the Gentiles, and he did spend four years in prison. Did any good come of that? Absolutely. We call them the prison epistles. We got a large chunk of the New Testament thanks to the fact that he had to sit down, and all he had to do was write. And he did. And we got some very important information from the Holy Spirit thanks to that. And it was underscored again, what we said before. This is not about personalities. I want people to be faithful, and I'll put them where I need them at the time. There will be others who will do what the Apostle Paul was doing. They will go with the gospel. In Romans 14, 19, So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Paul was also living by that as he helped to fulfill this vow. So what should govern us then? A desire for peace. A desire to get along. A desire to win people for Jesus Christ. One of the other great things that Paul got out of this was a free trip to Rome. So I'll just leave it at that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I sense your spirit is moving this morning in our congregation, touching hearts, giving a call. There might be someone here who's never responded in repentance and faith to the call to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray this will be the day, right now at this moment, 
when they are saying yes to you and no to themselves and their sin. Lord, there are many others here this morning who may be listening hard for the first time to that call about what the next step is for them and maybe some children here, some young people who've never really thought before that they might serve on a mission field or might go into the gospel ministry. And Lord, I pray that you would confirm that call if that's the case. And if it's for something else, you'd confirm that too because we know you need faithful witnesses in all walks of life. And Lord, may our hearts be ready to say yes. May we say with the Apostle Paul that we are ready to suffer and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.